The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Kia ora, I'm Bernard Hickey and welcome to When the Facts Change, brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. Kiwi Bank is committed to helping New Zealanders understand and navigate the economic issues that are shaping their lives and the future of Aotearoa. Soon I'll be talking to Dr. Paula O'Kane from Otago University about working from home and how it's changing everything. And later in the show, I'll be chatting with Kiwi Bank's Chief People Officer, Charlotte Ward, about what it's like within these businesses. But first, I wanted to look at the dust that has settled around the big housing package from last week and try and work out what's tactical and what's strategic here. What is the government's overall plan? Do they have one? Because when I looked through the package, there are some real surprises, of course, the interest deductibility move, which may drive up rents and it may (laughs) drive down prices. My gut feel is it won't drive down prices much and it actually won't be responsible for the rent rises that we do get. They're probably going to happen anyway. But what is the government trying to achieve here? Does it want to improve affordability? It says it does. Okay, So what does affordability mean? And I thought this would be an obvious thing to say and to target, because if you're the government and you're doing something really big, you better say what you're trying to achieve. Now, fair enough, you could say we're improving affordability, but we actually have ways to measure affordability. And right now, we are extremely unaffordable. In fact, the most unaffordable in the world with house prices to incomes and a multiple of eight. And in Auckland, it is now over 11. Now, to give you an idea, back in the late 1990s, those numbers were more like three and four and a half. So we've gone from three and four and a half to eight and 11. And all around the world, the accepted sort of multiple that is seen as affordable for first home buyers is around that three to four mark. So with what everyone thinks of normal interest rates, which these days could be anywhere from six or 7% to 10%, although most people don't think we're going to get there that soon, somehow you need to get from eight and 11, so eight, the rest of the country, 11, Auckland, back down to three or four. Now, how are you going to do that? And if you're serious about it, how quickly can you do it? And this was a question that was put very well by Jack Tame to Grant Robertson in the last weekend. And it really cuts to the core of the problem the government has in that it doesn't want to tell us what it's really targeting. Because if it did, it would have to fess up that it isn't actually going to get there anytime, pretty much in this century. So this is a question from Jack Tame asking Grant for a target. And I wanted to play this just so you can get a sense of how much he's trying to avoid giving anyone a target. 
Right at the moment, it's about eight to one in New Zealand, and that to me is is too high. And eleven to one in Auckland. Yeah, yeah. So and on average, it, what's affordable? What's yeah, affordable? look, I, again, I know you want me to give you a number. No, that that is a reasonable thing to yeah, ask. That is a that is. I a would re- like to see it come down from eight, absolutely. To what? Well, let's see how we go with these policies. Three to one and five to one are numbers that I've heard have you know varying levels of stress on people's income. What I'm saying is, let's bring it down from eight. So there we go, down from eight. But to what? If it's to five, then you actually need to cut house prices substantially. And that's, of course, not what the government's saying. The Prime Minister has said she doesn't want house prices to fall because it's most people's main asset. But this is the thing here. What we have is a government making quite big decisions, but without any strategy. So effectively, it is making a tactical decision to try and deal with the pain, the political pain of what it's seen in the last few weeks, including this week where we got fresh figures from CoreLogic from March, the most recent we have, which show that house price inflation in the likes of Wellington now are running at an annualised rate of over 30%, and in the rest of the country, well over 20%. So you can see why the government's so keen to move now and be seen to make, be making a big splash. But it's doing it because of what it sees right in front of its face, the pain that's going right into its poll ratings right now. This is what I call thinking with your antenna. Think of a snail. It moves very slowly and it leaves a trail of stuff along the ground behind it. And it feels very carefully in front of it with its antenna. It has fantastic ability to see what's right in front of its nose and then move around it very slowly. That's a very tactical approach, and that's the way that most of our governments have operated, certainly since the mid-1990s when MMP came in. However, what we actually really need is someone who's using a radar, who's looking over the horizon and telling everyone, this is what we want to focus on. We want to get to, let's say it's three to one, or even if it's five to one, that's probably more realistic. But this government is operating as a snail with antenna and not using radar to see over the horizon. It's a criticism I've levelled and others have at the John Key government, which tended to see issues in a very short-term transactional way. And this is the problem for the government. Because it's not willing to give us a housing affordability target, in the end, we don't really believe that they want to get there. Because if they did, they would be looking to push down prices very sharply. Well, that was the big news of the last week. What about one of the big trends in how we work, how we commute, where we work? That's all about the change towards working from home. I thought I'd talk to Dr. Paula O'Kane from Otago University, who really is an expert in this area. Well, well, now we're talking to Paula O'Kane from Otago University, who is an expert in work and technology. Paula, welcome to the spin-offs when the facts change. Thank you. Now, I'd love to know how you and your colleagues at the university dealt with the 
lockdown and whatever happened next? What 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 went down with you? Um, so we obviously had the two days to prepare like everybody else. So I guess um, one of the memories that I have is, is people um, looking like they were looting um, the Commerce Building, carrying desks and chairs and so on out of the university and to their homes. Um, we, we worked quite well. I, I had a lot of teaching, so it was quite a pace change for me to move everything online, to deal with different ways of teaching and working. As a team, we worked really well together. We had lots of catch-ups on Zoom, a lot of support from our immediate manager, um, a little bit probably too much communication from the university, a lot of mixed messages at the time as they tried to adapt to the new normal for everybody, and perhaps a little bit of jealousy for those who had less teaching and were able to concentrate very much on their research at that time. <laughs> yes, it's always different for everyone. Yes. I wondered how you think New Zealanders versus the rest of the world experienced lockdown in terms of working from home, because our lockdown was the sharpest, but also it was the shortest. Absolutely. And, and it, it totally was. I mean, I still um, listen to family in the UK and Ireland and their lockdowns never appear as hard as ours. At the same time, they're still doing them. So I guess we, we're very grateful. I think what we found was that we, we were very, very full on um, into the lockdown. Um, but... The, the flip side of that is we came out of it very quickly, so we perhaps didn't learn as much about how working from home worked for us and how remote working could be um, made to work very well from an organisational point of view and from an individual point of view. So you have people um, that I know in the UK and Ireland who have never been back to their office since um, March of last year, so they've had to really adapt to their home office environment, whereas in New Zealand we haven't had that. So we perhaps haven't put as much energy into understanding remote work um, post-lockdown as other countries will have because they're still experiencing it quite a lot. So how has um, working from home during COVID changed the way that people work in terms of, you know, their flexibility, their productivity and, you know, who, who's paying for what? Yeah, so I think, I mean, the survey that we did last year, so we had about two and a half thousand respondents and it was um, it, it was a pretty straightforward survey. But I think some of the key things that we saw there was that people were either similarly productive or more productive and it opened their eyes to the flexibility that working from home gave to them. And for um, organisations, we also find that uh, obviously a lot of people who would never have been allowed or able to work from home before were able to do that. So one way that we described it was this huge um, social experiment about whether we could make working from home work. And I think the, the fact that we did make it work for quite a, a huge amount of people across New Zealand um, means that we can do it and we did it without any planning, probably not a lot of resources in a lot of cases. And so I think it's really opened people's eyes, both at an individual level and at an organisational level, to some of the benefits that are there for working at home. So a lot of people found it fantastic for flexibility, no commuting time, dealing with family and children. But there were some who really struggled with the lack of human contact and feeling disconnected from their teams. You know, what sort of, what were the, the cons, if you like, of that working from home from a work point of view? 
So definitely some of the key cons were being able to switch off. Um, so that work-life balance, that blurring of boundaries. And that's pretty common in the literature around flexible working and remote working. And there's lots of ways to support people to help them to switch off, to put sort of guidelines around when we can work and how we work and, and to make sure that people aren't overworking. The lack of collaboration and I guess what we what we saw was a lot of Zoom fatigue. But I think that was probably, again, because we hadn't sat down and worked out how working from home would work. We had no time to do that. So people were working ad hoc on how to manage teams, how to operate as a team. And so it was probably a lot more Zoom meetings and a lot more collaboration than they perhaps would have wanted. But on the flip side of that, that we've got people who would have wanted more connection and who don't operate very well without some form of day-to-day interaction with their colleagues. And it can sort of lead to issues around feeling, feeling disconnected and low mood and anxiety and so on. So for us, one of the key things that that we always talk about beyond working from home is actually flexibility and giving people the flexibility to do what they would like to do um, as long as it works within a business context and when we asked people if they would like to continue working from home very few people said they would like to work every day from home Um, in fact it was only um, sort of about 20% most people talked about oh I'd like to work sort of um, you know a day a week or a day a month or a couple of days a month so generally people don't want that complete disconnection from the workplace. Now, one of the areas of concern, particularly in places like the UK, is that COVID-19 and the shock and the immediate and mass use of work from home, more flexible working situations, uh, could actually accelerate the move to the gig economy. And the UK has been thinking a lot about this from a regulatory point of view. Could you tell us how they are approaching it and maybe how they're a bit more ahead of the curve on us on dealing with the gig economy? Yeah, I mean, the gig economy has been sort of around, I mean, it's been around forever in many ways. It's just become more ubiquitous with the use of technology and the ability to access the jobs or the data that allow us to increase gig work. I think what's been what's been really good in the UK is some of the recent court cases around the definition of workers. So it had already been in UK legislation that there's three definitions of um, working arrangements. So there's employees, workers and self-employed. And a lot of the gig economy operators like Uber and and so on would suggest that their employees are self-employed but actually when you analyse the nature of that employment relationship and the burdens that are placed on them by the companies that they work for they are not actually self-employed as per the definition of self-employment and so they're considered a worker which is a an in-between space if you like that gives them rights to um, sick leave, holiday pay and so on so it gives a little bit more employment rights but in New Zealand we don't have have that classification or that in-between space. We have self-employed and we have employee. So I think that already sitting within their legislative environment enabled workers in the gig economy to be able to say, well, actually, you're putting metrics around us in terms of our performance and so on. So that um, enabled the cases to go through to the Supreme Court in the UK, which then said that people were workers rather than self-employed. Now, one of the interesting things is that some people think they've actually been more productive working from home with less distractions, less time for commuting, less time maybe in meetings they didn't want to be in. But what's the evidence on, you know, whether working from home is actually more productive and who captures the benefits of that extra productivity? 
Yeah, so I mean, the study that we did in New Zealand was very much self-report measures. So it was just a simple question, do you feel you've been more productive, less productive or similar? So those self-report measures aren't necessarily the best measures. They can be biased in terms of thinking that people perhaps had done more than they had done. So there certainly needs to be a little bit more work done around it. I guess the, the other issue that we're alluding to is that people can at times work longer hours, um, spend more time at work because it is easier to get to and from our home office and to get to and, uh, and from our business premises. So again, we, we, we need to look at employer responsibility here and employers have responsibility to set reasonable goals, to monitor employees, to make sure that they meet those reasonable goals and to make sure that employees are not being overworked, particularly if you have a set of working hours in terms of the number of hours in a week. It actually is the onus of employers to make sure that people are not overworking. That's one of the problems with the gig economy is that you feel like you can do so much and if you're not doing anything, um, that seems like a waste and you end up with your work bleeding into your family home life, particularly when you're doing your work at home. I wondered if under our new health and safety rules where directors are personally responsible for the health of their workers in their workplace, which may be their home, whether they've thought about this, not just in terms of tripping over the vacuum cleaner in the lounge, but also with mental health. Yeah, I mean, under the health and safety legislation, there's absolutely a responsibility when employees are working at home to, to make sure that they are adhering to the usual health and safety regulations. So, you know, for example, we've still got to be aware of employees' mental health and we've got to be aware of the physical and ergonomic aspects of how they're working. And so a good practice and a good employer will explore all of those um, elements with with their staff and also provide their leadership with training in, in order to manage employees who work remotely. So what what are the appropriate touch points? Um, how often should we um, communicate with each other? Some people might want to have a informal meeting once or twice a week. Some people might want it more often. So it's a really important to have a good conversation about what's reasonably practicable in terms of how we manage people's physical and mental well-being when they're working at home. Now, another part of this is the surprising amount of money that a, a company can save if someone is not in their office working and is instead using their own personal broadband, their own personal chairs and tables if they haven't taken them from the office on the two days before the lockdown, and also other resources at home, which maybe aren't compensated for. That's understandable, given we weren't really expecting this. But how do you think our pay systems might adjust to, you know, working from home, where at the moment it seems like a cost has been transferred straight from the employer to the employee. I mean, I think some people would suggest that a good employer, and we have heard examples of that um, throughout New Zealand, would offer some sort of recompense for the cost of working at home, but we also know that others will not. Um, interestingly, um, the study that we did in New Zealand, there was a similar study done in Ireland. We worked together on it. And out of that, they have come up with a government strategy for remote working. So it's called Making Remote Work Work. And one of the things that they're looking at is reviewing the treatment of remote working for the purposes of tax and exemption within the budget. So it's actually been looked at from a national level to encourage employers and employees to work together to, to maximise those benefits of remote working. So I think the government here could really play a role in looking at 
what the role of remote working is, particularly in revitalising um, the rural communities in New Zealand. If people could work more remotely, then we could um, enable people to live in different areas in New Zealand that are not our main centres. And at the same time, though, we could give um, put something in place that says, you know, here's a certain amount per day or per week or per month that you work at home and the expectation is that it's either a taxable expense or that your, um, your employer should provide it for you. So the very many listeners from the IRD to this podcast, their ears will have pricked up at our discussions about fringe benefits tax and, and how the, these costs are taxed because they're not so keen on um, people asking for exemptions for costs that they incur at home. They get very, very twitchy about that. And the problem at the moment is that if, for example, your employer gave you a laptop to work from home, uh, let's say paid for your broadband at home, um, that would be subject to fringe benefits tax at the moment. Yeah, and, and um, I guess it's creating that balance, isn't it? So it's making sure that the government looks at that bigger picture. Um, what are the benefits to the economy, the benefits to individuals and the benefits particularly to our rural communities of of facilitating and supporting and, and encouraging more remote working? And I think that's the bigger picture in here. And, and people do feel that they should be recompensed in some way. I mean, we certainly weren't at the university, but there was lots of conversations about it. So I think it's a small gesture, in a sense, which would enable people to feel as if that is valued, whether it's at that organisational level or at that tax system level. And it has to be one, the other, or some combination of both. Yes, something for IRD to get their teeth into, and hopefully it's, it's not someone's pay packet. The other area that I'm fascinated with in the culture of work is how people make the sorts of connections that they believe will help them get promoted or give them, you know, a, a leg up in their careers, which in the past often meant, and frankly, it was quite a sexist thing, that you basically stuck around the office forever. Called, you know, you had an, a problem with presenteeism. How has this COVID drive towards work from home affected women, often more than men, and not in a good way? So I think there's there's, there's lots of layers in there in, in that question. Um, I guess the first layer is inherently looking at what's happening within organisations when those informal relationships are perhaps informing decision-making too much, and we know that that is the basis of a lot of particularly advancements and promotion opportunities so systemically, that, 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 is, that is a problem which isn't necessarily resolving itself very well in the, in the workplace. For people who are not at the office, whether they're men or women, remotely they can become quite invisible. And, and that is a danger because if you're not seen there in the office and, you're, and other people are, and you've got a combination of people who are working from home and away from the office, people can in some ways forget about you. They sort of aren't aware of everything that you're doing. It's not obvious. You're not having those informal conversations continuously about what you're up to, what you're investigating, what you're interested in, what your job is involving. So that's a real danger. And again, these things come back to really strong management skills, really strong leadership skills within an organisation to think about ways that we can actually encourage people who aren't in the office to explore what they've been doing. It might involve more informal catch-ups with teams and team members facilitating that and encouraging that. And I think the third the third layer in there in your question is around the impact of COVID, um, particularly on female workers. And the research is rife. It has been 
much, much harsher on women than men. Working from home, particularly with homeschooling and children, the burden of the parental responsibility and the house responsibility has and many, many research studies, including ones on academic females, has shown that the burden has been heavily taken on by women. And again, we would think that employers or a good employer or a forward-thinking employer would perhaps take that into account whenever we're looking at how people have performed across the year or if we're looking forward into promotion opportunities. So it, it is a tricky one and it continues to, to linger. Just thinking of your research, which I understand you're going to do a fresh round of, what surprised you the most about how people were coping or saw this unusual period? I think I think the thing that I was most surprised about was the level of optimism that people had about being able to continue working in the future, which is why we are going to do our 12-month follow-up shortly so to find out what actually did happen. So we had 65% of people were optimistic that they would be able to do more homeworking in the future, and only 8% were pessimistic, so the rest were unsure. And I think that was, um, that was really good to see because a lot of people wanted more homeworking and were also very optimistic that their organisation organisations will be forward thinking enough to embrace um, some more home or remote working. So that, that actually surprised me. That figure came out much higher than what I anticipated from what I had, I guess, known of interacting and engaging with organisations in New Zealand. Now that we're a year into it, and we're lucky in that we only had a relatively short lockdown, or in Auckland's case, a couple of extra little ones at the end. But in America, Europe, um, the UK, you're certainly seeing people in lockdown for a year, more than a year in some cases. And the initial enthusiasm and that that feeling of we're all in this together, we're going to deal with this crisis, that sort of dribbled away. And now there's a bunch of grumpy people, often burnt out, suffering Zoom fatigue. What do you think you might see when you ask the repeat survey? Do you think that 65% enthusiasm will still be there? Well, unfortunately, the repeat survey will only be from the New Zealand context. We had collected data to enable us to do that and ask permission to follow up, whereas the complementary study in Ireland hadn't done that. But they did do a second study in Ireland in about oh, September, October. Um, similar sorts of questions and actually similar sorts of results in terms of productivity. And there was results were extraordinarily similar to ours. So still high levels of productivity, high levels of optimism coming through. And in fact, more people were enjoying working from home in their second survey than in their first survey. So we might find that people got into the swing of it a lot more, whereas in New Zealand, we perhaps, you know, five weeks or we might have been at home two months, depending on on our levels and so on, um, perhaps wasn't long enough to put the right infrastructure into place and to get the right way of working for everybody, the right connections, the balance on that social connectivity and so on. So I think you I I think we will find that we will lag behind in our approach to remote working because we have not had to pursue it as intensely over the last year as other countries have. Paula, what do you think we'll look back on this period and see in the many years to come as the most important change in the way that we work and, and deal with each other? I would like to think that we'll look back and we will have thought a lot more about flexibility in the workplace and how people can work in ways that work for them, but still fulfil the goals of the organisation and in some some ways perhaps fulfil them better for an organisation. 
I would like to think that we are more more aware that um, it's not a one-size-fits-all model and that we can sort of think about different people in terms of their personalities, where they would like to live, how they like to operate and work, and that we can adjust a lot more to that, essentially giving people a lot more um, control over their day-to-day working life. And that in and of itself is shown to give people much better mental health, reduces stress and actually increases productivity. So if we can just learn to be a little bit more flexible in how we approach the traditional way of working, I think it will be better for everybody. So that's what I would like to see. Well, thank you very much to Dr. Paula O'Kane for joining us on When the Facts Change. Thank you. Well, soon we'll be back with Charlotte Ward from Kiwi Bank to tell us what it was like inside a really big organisation that suddenly had to work from home. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with Kiwi Bank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's Kiwi Bank economist Sabrina Delgado on what's happening with the labour market in Aotearoa. Our slowing economy gives way to higher unemployment and we're seeing tightness in the labour market quickly abating. Both a recovery on the supply side with our surging migration, boosting labour supply and loosening some very tight labour market conditions. But now a stronger narrative is coming through. As consumer demand cools, so too is the demand for labour. Firms are no longer hiring with the same gusto. Already, unemployment has started to lift from record lows and we expect that to continue throughout 2024. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Tired of diesel buses? Want more cycle lanes or bus lanes? Which projects do you want Auckland Transport to work on first? They need your opinion. So head to haveyoursay.at.govt.nz forward slash RLTP to do just that. Consultation closes on 17 June. Get in quick. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. I'm talking to Charlotte Ward, who is the Chief People Officer at Kiwi Bank. Charlotte, welcome to the spinoff and when the facts change. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So tell us how the workforce at Kiwi Bank have operated, handled life and work in that period since COVID. So, yes, thank you for asking. It's been fascinating. We've actually been in a lot of conversations with our people about this topic recently. So over the last few months, we have been having what we've called culture conversations about the what helps people to do their best work right now, but also into the future to help us support where Kiwi Bank wants to go. And flexible work is um, one of the big topics of discussion. So I think what our people are saying is it's been a fantastic way for them to work and they're really enjoying the change since COVID. But what's been really interesting is also hearing from them a bit about what they find really hard as well. 
So one of the big things that's come out, particularly in the context of culture conversations, is that actually what they are really missing from that workplace is the connection and that sense of belonging that you do get from coming into the office every day too. What specifically were they missing? You know, we don't always miss being in the office, but, but what is it that they said they really wanted to do? Yeah, it's a really interesting point because on the one hand, I think we're hearing not just at Kiwi Bank but also worldwide that actually um, having most of your meetings and conversation digitally does help you to have a level of intimacy in some way because you go into a people's homes, you get to see their backgrounds, you see your cat walking across your keyboard, your kids coming in. So it does give you one level of connection. However, what it doesn't give you is the sitting next to your colleague, sharing lunch with them, going into the kitchen and having an incidental conversation with someone that you might not set a meeting up with if you were working from home. So it's more the incidental conversations and collegiality that you might get from being actually on the ground with your team. Is that something that you can recreate online or do you have to bring people in, you know, two days a month for that? Or how can you schedule that sort of um, accidental meetings and the sort of um, things that that are surprises and that can actually really make a difference? Well, I think that's the big question that not just us at Kiwi Bank are trying to answer at the moment. And I was actually at a meeting last week with some other chief people officers around Auckland, and we were asking ourselves that very question because I think the feedback is is pretty consistent from organisations across New Zealand in terms of how you actually do that. So we have people doing a number of different things, you know, having team days so that you make sure that when people do come into the office, we're all doing it at once because uh, it's part Part of our conversations, we were having people say, oh, I decided to come into the office and I was actually the only person coming into the office that day. So, you know, how do you make sure you kind of really all gather and say, okay, you know, Tuesday's our team day, so let's all make sure that we come in uh, together on that day. And in fact, what I would say is that what we're moving towards is a more hybrid model of working from home. There certainly are organisations in New Zealand that have decided to say, you know what, we're going to say that the office doesn't exist anymore and we are just all going to work from home. But actually what I'm finding more common in New Zealand is that we are moving to a hybrid model where we're saying, as we do in Kiwi Bank, two to three days a week at home or in the office and um, then come into the office And that's where we're trying to kind of play is what does that hybrid model look like and what do we need to do to make sure that individuals are at their best but also the organisation as well. Does that mean that you can get by with, you know, maybe less big offices or or do you have to set up some other different facility? Maybe it's like a special new team building facility. How are you thinking about that? Yes, and I think that's a question that um, a lot of people are asking themselves at the moment and I think we can see in the news people are saying, well, actually, maybe we don't need as much office space anymore and also where we do have office space, what is the best design of that office space knowing that people aren't going to come in every day so I think we're moving away from everyone having an allocated desk and um, and 
somewhere where they can put all their things on top of that desk to more of a sort of, you know, lockers, open meeting spaces. And that's certainly from the other organisations I've been talking to where we're heading there. So some people are, are really good at that. They like being flexible. They like the ability to avoid having to commute. But then there are some other people who, um, you know, they're more social or, you know, they just like having a desk with a picture of their kids on it and, you know, um, meeting people by the water cooler. So how can you tell who's really good at this and who isn't? And how are they coping with this, this change in world? Yes, and I think that's a really good point. So I think that it's a bit more complicated than just saying working from home is good and office work is bad or, you know, this is the new way of working. I think we need to get really, really clear on what a successful model of hybrid or even for those who are completely working from home, what does that look like? Because everybody needs different things to be successful. And actually, on top of all of the great things that come with flexibility, we know, and particularly from overseas where, let's Remember that actually a lot of people don't have the choice of whether they can come into the office or not. So my, I used to work in London, I used to work in Melbourne, and a lot of people still haven't been into the office since this whole COVID thing began a year ago. And there certainly are some downsides. Uh, so we have digital overload and exhaustion. We have well-being issues with people just not knowing or um, not having the same cues about when to turn off and, and go home, as it were. We have the potential of people not taking annual leave because actually there's what they would see as nowhere to go. Uh, and we have the shrinking networks as well. So you just end up talking to who you have meetings with rather than that meeting up with people in the office. So there are some downsides that we need to get really, really good at understanding and helping people through. And for me, one of the big things there is that we're, we really are relying on our leaders more than ever before. But the trick is that it's not just the leaders needing to do the same things they've always done. It's actually leaders needing to do new things to engage and help and support the well-being of people who are not necessarily in the office. And that's actually a big shift. Can you give us some examples of, of, of the sort of things that, that work and that people have been using? So I think that, um, well, for me, I mean, it's so simple, but what working from home and having a remote team does is really magnifies the need for leaders to be checking in with their people every day and having conversations and being very clear about performance and what good performance looks like because, and, and what our people tell us is they love that trust of, um, you know, you're working from home and I know you'll get the right outcomes, but let's make sure that we're really, really clear on what those outcomes are. But we also need to not just be having those performance conversations, but also the well-being conversations to say, hey, I noticed you sent that email at 7.30 last night. Um, can you make sure that you're actually turning off the emails and the chats and actually getting out of your office and going for a walk? And, you know, and, and obviously people are, are uh, thinking about this for themselves, but having the support and permission from your leader is also really, really important. Yes, because you can have presenteeism in the office, but you can also have it online. Yeah, and uh, that's that's one of the risks that people get um, so 
bogged down in their computer that you get burnout, which apparently has been quite a thing. Uh, New Zealand's had the shortest lockdown of any of the developed countries, but in some of those places where you know they've had a year of this, there, there is a burnout problem, definitely, that, that, is, is a, that is an issue. Absolutely. And you can see that in some of the overseas responses now. So we just saw last week that Citibank is introducing Friday as a Zoom-free meeting day. Um, it's definitely something that is really front of mind for a lot of people is this well-being because you've got the COVID anxiety on top of that. So it's a, let's not forget what an amazing thing we've all been through. And actually, the fact that it's still happening as well is something that we can't forget. And in New Zealand, I think we're so lucky um, but overseas especially, people really still are in the midst of lockdowns and, and all of that sort of thing as well. Um, so it's a lot, we're asking a lot of people and I, therefore I think that leaders and the way organisations support people uh, needs needs to change and evolve. One thing we've seen overseas is that this episode has accelerated the move to a bit of a gig economy and has forced some governments, Britain in particular, to look more closely at how the law treats working from home and the relationship between a worker and an, an employer. And I, I wonder now that you know many people are using their own equipment, their own home offices, their own broadband and power, how that might change the relationship between the worker and the employer. Now, Kiwi Bank obviously has many full-time and part-time employees, but how do you think that's going to play out in the way that um, the government you know, regulates uh, employment and that relationship between the employee and the employer? For example, around self- health and safety, where directors are personally responsible for health and safety at, at the workplace, which may now be the home. Yep. Absolutely. And and it's certainly something that we talk a lot about, about Kiwi Bank, because we do want to make sure that, um, you know, safety and well-being of our people is, is the number one priority. And it does become harder when people are at home. So we have introduced learning and uh, support for leaders and, and people to ensure that they do have a safe, safe, safe workplace. Um, but there are certainly some blurry areas that are not regulated for, which I think we will probably see play out over the next couple of years. And the government certainly has a role to play with that. What do you think those blurry areas are? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the workplaces. So so at Kiwi Bank, we have photos of people's desks at home. And, you know, is, is that a safe workplace? And we have conversations with people and their leaders. But imagine I'm talking to you now and I'm on my head phones and I'm on a call with you and I decide to walk into my kitchen to get a snack and I burn myself or I walk out into the garden because it's a beautiful day and I trip over a wheelbarrow that somebody's left there. You know, what what liability is there, if any, and what reasonable levels of care can the employer expect to take there? So I think that there are some areas which maybe could never be regulated for, but we probably need to be anticipating and having conversations about So you've been in this business for a while now. It's just over a year since COVID changed our worlds forever. What's been the biggest surprise for you, not just in the workplace, but all around? I think the biggest surprise is how quickly this has all happened and how quickly we've actually all adapted. And I think the level of resilience of people and organisations is really quite amazing when you think about it. 
you know, thinking wider than Kiwi Bank, but if you think about how, for example, hospitality has responded in lockdowns, and I was in Melbourne for some of those lockdowns, you suddenly had this really rapid turnaround of, oh, okay, we can't actually have people come into our restaurants anymore, but let's get really innovative about what we can offer for people to pick up or to deliver to people. So I think we've seen some really fast transformation and it may well have been the path that we were already on but in some ways it's just sped things up so much and I'm always surprised by how resilient people are to respond to this sort of thing because it really is quite an extraordinary time that we are in. Yes, work turbocharged. Yeah. Charlotte, thank you very much for coming into the spin-off and for being on When the Facts Change. Great. Thanks, Bernard. Well, big changes in our world, and that's what we're all about, when the facts change. Thanks to Dr. Paula O'Kane and Charlotte Ward, and thanks also to KiwiBank. And remember, subscribe for your weekly podcast so you don't miss an episode. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, te ai he Butler here, Podcast Manager at the Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.